right, well, let me add my welcome. My name's John T. It's so great to be able to welcome you. Um, and can I just say, Val, it's, partic- where is Val, it's particularly lovely to see you. Um, we've been thinking and praying so much for you. We praise God for you. It's lovely to see you. Right, we're going to start a new series this afternoon. Um, although there may be things about it that sound strangely familiar. Because for the last term and a bit, we've been thinking about the life of Abraham and God's great command to Abraham to go and I will bless you. Go. It was God's commission to Abraham was to go and be a blessing to the nations. And uh, we had a fantastic art exhibition on Friday night. Who was, who was there? Anyone? Most, lots of you there? Great. If you weren't there, then we bought a little selection of it so you can catch up some of what um, you missed. But it was terrific. Um, if you want one of the canvases, I did say this last week, if you want one of the canvases, there are 13 of them. They'd look lovely on your wall. They'd remind you of God's great promises. Why wouldn't you want one? And there's a little piece of paper in a bowl. Write your name on a piece of paper. Put it in the bowl. We'll pick the first 13 out, and you get a canvas. Can't say fair on that. So, but what we're going to move on to think about now is we're going to slow the pace down. We've been going quite through fast through big stories. We're going to spend the next six or seven weeks, really focusing in just on one paragraph. It comes at the end of Matthew's gospel. And it's the final words that Jesus spoke to his disciples as he left earth. Because as a church, we've been doing a bit of thinking about our vision and what we're about and what matters to us. And one of the things we've started talking a lot about is that we gather together like this on a Sunday and at other times in the week. We gather together but and we go together across London. We gather from across London. We go across London. It's sort of the heartbeat of our church family. And we're going to spend some time thinking about going. Jesus says, go. Remember, God told Abraham, go. Jesus says, go. This, this Bible thing, it's all one story, right? It's all connected. So we're going to be thinking a lot about that. But I, I just want to make sure... We sometimes call this the Great Commission. That's what it's uh, titled in my Bible, at least. And I just want to make sure that there can be a danger with that, that we say this is the most important thing that Jesus tells us to do. This is the thing that matters most. I think that that would be a mistake. Because Jesus says other things as well. So, for example, Jesus says, love one another. This is the greatest commandment I give you. Love one another. Oh, now hang on a second. What do we do now? Because we've got a great commission and a great commandment. Love God and love one another. What do we do now? Well, what I want to suggest is that we don't so push one that we forget the other. This is what can happen. If you imagine a weightlifter who only ever does any work on one arm, right? They just do one arm. And they get massive muscles on one arm, but then the other arm is kind of shriveled stick. The danger is that churches can become like that. <laughs> I mean, it'd be funny. To, it doesn't matter. Churches can become like that. You see, you, we can work really hard, love one another, love one another. We love one another. We have a great time. We have a happy time. We love one another. But we never go and tell people the amazing news that we have. And our going arm gets shriveled. But it is also possible that we so overemphasize, go, 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 that actually 
our loving one another arm gets shriveled. And what happens is people feel beaten up and they feel pressured and they feel exhausted and burnt out. And that's why we've worked really hard at this idea of we're gathering together to love one another, to invest in one another, to care for one another, so that we can then go. I hope you can see that we need both muscles working in order, in order for this, I think, to be the church Jesus wants us to be. So although we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the Great Commission, please do not hear me saying that that means we should forget about caring for one another. Absolutely not. That matters. So with all that in mind, um, let's read the Great Commission. Uh, Let's pray for God's help, and then we're going to read it. It's Matthew 28, if you want to turn to it. Um, If you've got a Bible, it would be great to have it open or get it up on your phone. It's Matthew 28, verse 16. Let me pray, and then we're going to read it. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help now. Father, please would you strengthen our muscles, our muscles of faith. Give us what we need to be the church that you need us to be, you want us to be, you call us to be in London. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Great, so we're dipping into the very end of Matthew's gospel, uh, just to fill you in on the story. Jesus has lived, done some amazing miracles, taught some amazing things, died on a cross, risen again. And then it says this, Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples, okay, sorry, just to say that, there's something you need to say about that. All the way through Matthew's gospel, it's been 12, the 12 disciples, the 12 disciples. There's a poignancy here. You see, there is a disciple who's no longer with the crowd. Judas has betrayed Jesus. There's a tragedy in that. And the reason I say that is because I think Matthew's very open and honest about the reality of being a church, being a group of Christians. Reality is that sometimes people walk away. It should grieve us. Do you not think, as Matthew wrote, the 11? Because Matthew is one of the 12. Do you not think, as he wrote, the 11? His heart stopped and he thought, we grieve that. Anyway, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Oh, now, I just need to stop and say, we're getting to the Great Commission. Because it wasn't just Judas who betrayed Jesus. All of them did. All of them denied him. All of them left him. All of them ran away. All of them abandoned him when he needed them the most. And Jesus said, when I've risen from the dead, I want you to go back to Galilee, and I'm going to meet you in Galilee on a mountain. Why Galilee? Why did Jesus want to go back to Galilee? I'll tell you why. Because that's where it started. And Jesus says, I'm going to take you back to the beginning. I'm going to take you back to where it first started. I'm going to take you back to that place where I first called you. And sometimes you know what? That's what we need. We get all, we screw up, we mess up. And Jesus comes to us and says, let's go back to the beginning. Should we go back to the beginning? Let's go back and start again. Let's go back and remember what we're doing. Let's go back and remember who I am. And it may be that for some of us this afternoon, we're in a place of failure and we're in a place of struggling. And Jesus says, let's go back to Galilee. Let's go back to that place where it all started. Let's remember why you're doing this, why you're following me. Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Okay, now look, I mean, 
Do you see how honest this is? This isn't some victorious, um, awesome, stellar band of heroes. Heroes of the faith. One of them's betrayed Jesus, and here they are. They're sort of worshiping, but they're doubting, and there's there's this kind of uncertainty and confusion. That's the context we're in. So if you're here this afternoon, and you feel a bit unsure of where you're at, perhaps there's a bit of you that wants to worship, or perhaps you find yourself doubting, you're in good company. You're in the right place. Jesus isn't looking for the perfect superhero Christian. Jesus takes ordinary, worshipping, doubting people. People who've messed up. People who need to go right back to the beginning. And he says, I tell you what, I'm going to start with you 11. Let's start with you. And you are going to turn the world upside down. You've got to understand what Jesus was working with. This is it. This is all he's got after his ministry. 11. They're not much of a prospect. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm not sure Jesus could ever use me. Well, let me tell you, if he used them, he can use you. If we're willing to be used. But I realize that some of us may not even quite be sure where we're at with Jesus yet. That's okay. Hang in there. We're going to see some amazing things. Right, here we go. Let's read the rest. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, that's what we're going to work through the next six weeks. Just take a phrase at a time. Today, we're just going to do all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does that phrase mean? Let's face it, for a human being to say that sentence sounds like the height of arrogance, doesn't it? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Does that not sound arrogant to you? Well, if it sounds arrogant, I hope by the end of our time together, we will see that for all authority to rest in the hands of Jesus is not an arrogant thing, but is a beautiful and glorious and exciting thing. My hope is that we'll see it's a reality that will give us encouragement where we feel weak, that will give us purpose where we feel pointless, and will give us confidence where we feel crushed. That is where we're heading this afternoon. If we can see that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, it will change everything. But look, we've got to get some, we've got to do some work on this phrase to get to the heart of what Jesus is saying and to see the glory of it. Okay. So let's let's work our let's work our way through this. Um, We're going to break it down to three bits. Firstly, uh, look what Jesus has. Right, look what Jesus has. He has all authority. I wonder what words and images come into your mind when you hear the word authority. Let's talk authority for a second. What's the first, what are the things, don't, don't shout out, but what do you think to yourself? What, what comes into your head when you think of authority? Positive things? Negative things? I'm, I'm not sure that authority is a particularly popular thing at the moment. 
But here's the definition I want us to work with this afternoon. Authority is the ability and the right to act. Okay? The ability and the right to act. If I found myself, um, if I found myself standing outside the Oval Office, okay, and there's the door, and the president is sitting at his desk in there, do I have the ability to open the door? Yes. I'm quite good at doors. It's something I've been doing most of my life. I could definitely open the door. Do I have the right to open the door? Well, no. So I have the ability, but not the right. Therefore, I don't have authority. Get it? It could also be the fact that you have the right, but not the ability. Um, A few years ago, there was a viral uh, video clip, which you all have seen, of the dog in Richmond Park chasing the deer. Right? And the bloke chasing after the... Kind of like screaming at this dog. That man was the dog's owner. He had the right to call the dog to order. He had the right to call the dog to obedience. But he had no ability. So he had no authority. Because in order for you to have authority, you need both the right and the ability to do it. There's a great G.K. Chesterton quote. I love this quote. He says, um, If a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant now, There is no denying he would have great power here. But I would be the first to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. In other words, you've got no right to be here. You may have power, but you've got no right. Or you may have the right, but you've got no power. You need both. But actually, it needs another bit, our definition. That's not enough of a definition in order to get at what the Bible means by authority. And this is important, so stick with this. Authority is the ability and the right to act for the good of others. That is what the Bible means when it talks about authority. You see, you may have the right and the ability to act, and you may use that authority in order to gain stuff for yourself, in order to push yourself forward. And the tragedy is that humanity has a terrible track record with authority. That's why it's a negative word in our culture. Because people have the ability and the right, and they use it wrongly. And so to be an authority in our culture normally means you're one of the bad guys. To not be trusted. So there are people who are out to line their own, politi- uh, their own pockets, and that's true in politics, it's true in business, it's true in, f- in families, and it's true in churches. Authority abused. Look, let me spell this out as clearly as I can. And I think this needs to be said over and over and over again, so I make no apology that I've said this before. God hates the abuse of authority. He hates it. In fact, in the Bible, it's one of the things that he speaks most strongly against. Abuse of authority is an evil thing. Whether that is parents abusing their children, politicians abusing their citizens, or pastors abusing their congregations, 
wherever that abuse of authority, wherever you have someone in authority who uses that power to harm rather than do good, it is evil. God says so. And it should grieve us. I, 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 this week, as we've heard about Parliament and, and 56 of our MPs are being investigated for sexual assault, for sexual misconduct. How, how can that be? But the trouble is, it's not just the world, is it? It's the church, and we know this. God knows, God sees, and he will bring to justice those who abuse authority. But just because humanity abuses authority, it's important that we don't become cynical about authority entirely. Because there is a good and right and beautiful authority that our world desperately needs. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the ability and the right to act for the good of others. That's what Jesus does. He has the ability. He has all power. And he has the right. And he uses that to do good to others. You see, throughout his life, you find me one place where Jesus did a miracle to line his own pockets. You find me one place where Jesus did something for his own advantage. You won't find it. Because he always used his authority to serve others. So look what Jesus has. He has all authority. But I want to push on. And we're going to push deeper into this because it's such an important phrase. I hope you're going to stick with this because it really is important. Here's the second thing. Look how far it goes. Look what Jesus has. He has all authority. Look how far it goes. In heaven and on earth. That's the authority that we're talking about. Okay, let's, let's just pick that apart. Heaven. That's not Jesus going, oh, everywhere. He's being specific. He's using important language. Jesus has all authority in heaven. What does he mean? He is talking about the unseen spiritual world. There is no spiritual authority. There is no spiritual power that is higher than Jesus. Look, I know we live in a materialistic culture where basically we believe that all you see is all there is. That if I can't see it, it's not real. That is very naive. That is a very, very small-minded way to view this world. When God has shown us that there is a world that we cannot see, an unseen spiritual world, a world of angels and demons, a world of evil and good, a world that is swirling all around us that we can't see with our physical eyes. And Jesus is saying, I have authority in that realm. We must never imagine that Jesus is in a cosmic battle with evil for ultimate authority. They're sort of tussling it out. Who's going to get ultimate authority? Jesus already has ultimate authority. All authority in heaven, he says. There's no demon, no curse, no magic, no force that is too powerful for Jesus to control and to rule. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a battle going on. There is an enemy in the heavenly realms. The Bible talks of him as the devil, and he does have power, but he does not have authority. 
over Jesus. Therefore, I want to say to you, we do not need to fear the devil. We do not need to fear evil. The name of Jesus is more powerful and has more strength than any other name. The devil can shout and stamp and roar and fight, but he cannot touch the authority of Jesus. So we need to be aware of this because I think some of us can sometimes get very scared by the idea of spiritual forces and and the spiritual battle. We don't need to fear. Actually, Jesus rules all authority in heaven and on earth. You see, human leaders stress and fear their kind of authority, right? Human leaders try and grab hold of their authority, but Jesus has all authority on earth. We must obey God and not man. There is no human being who has a greater authority than Jesus. And so human rulers can shout and stamp and roar and fight, but they cannot overthrow the authority of Jesus. There is no human being living on this earth, doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter how big their white table is that they sit at, in ridiculous state of power and authority, doesn't matter how long their table is, they do not have authority over Jesus. Jesus rules. All authority. From presidents all the way down to parents, to pastors, to politicians, all of them under the authority of Jesus. Do we believe that? That's where authority rests. I think sometimes the problem can be we have this view of Jesus from the Gospels that he's kind of gentle and nice and he goes around doing nice things and Jesus' hands are kind, hands doing good to all and he's really doing nice things for everybody. He just wants to be nice. Look, don't get me wrong, he is gentle, he is nice, but he has all authority. So perhaps at my primary school, we should have sung, Jesus' hands are very powerful hands, ruling over all, for their good. It wouldn't have scanned quite as nicely, but it would have been more accurate. So Jesus never stresses about his authority. Jesus never feels threatened. Human leaders feel threatened. Jesus never does. Human leaders feel insecure. Jesus never does. Human leaders always look over their shoulders to see if there's someone lurking in the shadows, plotting to overthrow them. Jesus never looks over his shoulder. There are no shadows. There is no one plotting to overthrow them. Well, they're plotting, but they'll fail. Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not desperately hoping that some people will vote for him. He doesn't need your vote. He doesn't need your devotion. He doesn't need your worship. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. But he calls you to come worship him. Come worship me. We've got to see the scope, the sheer magnificent scope. All authority in heaven and on earth. It doesn't matter how loud people are shouting. Jesus has authority. But then there's the third thing. And I want you to see, look how it happened. How is it that Jesus has all authority? We've seen the definition of authority. We've seen the the scope of it. But how did he get it? 
where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's been given to me. Not grabbed, not earned, not voted for, not won, given to him. Jesus is saying he doesn't have potential authority, he has actualized authority. It is something he possesses now. And the the reason Jesus possesses this is because of his resurrection. Now, if you've become, if you, if you start to drift off, we're about to do some quite slightly challenging theology, right? So stick with it, because this is going to be really fun. You're going to have a great time, but you're going to need to listen, otherwise you're just going to be bored. So, it's on you, not me. <laughs> Here's my question then. When Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, hasn't Jesus always had all authority? Has he always had authority? Or has something changed? When did Jesus receive all authority? Okay, let's do a brief history of the eternal Son of God. Ready? If you go back before the first Christmas, back into eternity past... Jesus, well, the eternal Son of God existed. He has always existed. The eternal Son of God. Equal authority with the Father and the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons, equal in authority and power. Who made the world? God made the world. Who made the world? The Father made the world. Who made the world? The Son made the world. For by him and through him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Ah, that's why he has authority over the evil spirits. That's why he has all authority over heaven and earth, because he made it. Whether visible or invisible, um, thrones, rulers, powers, and authorities, all things were created by him and for him. That's Colossians chapter 1. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has all authority. Because he made everything. Because he's equal to his father. He did not submit to any other authority. There's no external authority saying, you must do this. No, the eternal son of God had the ability and the right to do exactly what he pleased for the good of others. I mean, that's what it means to be God. (laughs) To be God means you are ultimate authority. That's what we believe about Jesus. But then something happened. At the incarnation, the eternal Son of God took on flesh. He became a man. And when he became a man, he humbled himself, now listen to this carefully, and he placed himself under authority. He's the eternal Son of God. He's never been under authority because he's the ultimate authority. But suddenly he becomes human and he places himself under authority. Here we go. If you don't believe me, here's some authorities he's under. He was under parental authority. He had a mum or dad. And just like Tara always does what her mum says, Jesus always did what his mum said. May even have done it better than Tara. (laughs) He obeyed what they said. He had a mother and father who were in authority over him. They were in charge. 
Have you, ne- look, have you ever thought about this, right? He's the eternal son of God, and here he is as a three-year-old, and he's being told by his parents what he must do and how he must act. He's under their authority. Like, seriously, what we believe is so massive. (laughs) And it wasn't just parental authority. He submitted to his parents perfectly. He was under religious authority. He submitted himself to the law of God. He did what the law required. He didn't do whatever he fancied. There were obligations and requirements placed upon him. He was under authority of the law of God. And so he submitted to that law perfectly. He kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. He didn't, right, that, that wasn't what he was doing when he was the eternal son of God. He wasn't going, oh, what's number? Oh, I need to keep the commandments. He wasn't under authority as the eternal son of God, but now he is. And Jesus was under civil authority. He paid taxes. <laughs> Come on, let you... Genuinely, this is mind-blowing. He's the eternal son of God who created all things. And then some little tax collector goes, you owe me a drachma. He goes, here you go. The sheer humility of Jesus that didn't say, who do you think you are asking me for a drachma? I made you, little man. No, he submitted himself. If there'd been speed limits, he would have obeyed the speed limits because he placed himself under the authority of the civil rulers. He even submitted himself to the authority of the Roman governor who condemned him to death. He submitted to his authority. And he submitted to civil authorities Perfectly. Do you see this? Eternal Son of God, not under authority. Suddenly, eternal Son of God becomes man and is now under authority. That's what Jesus willingly embraced when he was conceived in the womb of Mary, when he was born as a baby, when he was a toddler, a child, a teenager, an adult. He submitted to a life under authority. Now, look, let's be clear. That's not to say that Jesus had no authority when he was on earth. Absolutely he did. Although for a time he laid aside his eternal authority. He came to be the divinely appointed and anointed Messiah. So, of course, he had some authority. The Holy Spirit of God filled him and empowered him. He went around healing people, and his teaching had authority. They could see it, so he had some authority. But in that moment, he didn't have all authority. He wasn't ultimately in authority because there was a mom and dad. There was a law. There was rulers. This was not the Son of God in all his glory. This was the Son of God with his glory hidden. Theologians talk about this as his state of humiliation. That moment when he gave up his glory. And you may say to me, why on earth would he do that? I tell you, it's because it's the only way he could save you. It's the only way he could save you. And if you don't know him this afternoon, you have to understand that's what it cost him. 
We are in such a mess. We have screwed up so badly because we get the tiniest little bit of authority. We use it for ourselves. We have sinned against God. We are deserving of God's punishment. And Jesus, the eternal son of God, said, I'm willing to enter into the state of humiliation in order that I might rescue these precious people that I created. He came to save you. But all of that changed when he rose from the dead again. The resurrection of Jesus was not just him coming back to life, it was something new. Because Jesus is now the God-man, he's still man, he's God-man, but he now has all authority. He's no longer under human authority. There are no human authorities that can now tell him what to do. Ah, you need to pay taxes. He doesn't pay taxes anymore. He's no longer under parental authority. He's no longer under any authority because now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. You understand it is because he came, he lived in this state of humiliation. He learned obedience. He learned to submit himself to authority so that he could die on a cross for us and therefore He was raised and exalted to the highest place and given a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father because he now has been given all authority. If we had more time, I would show you how in Daniel 7, this is what was promised, God promised that someone would come, a a human being would be given all authority. How could that be? How could a human ever be entrusted with all authority? Well, they'd need to be perfect, and hey, probably they'd need to be God. So if you can find a human being who is God and perfect and who submits perfectly to authority, then he's proved himself to be the one who's worthy to be entrusted with authority. This is why you can trust him. Because what he does with authority is he lays it aside to die for you. That means if he has authority over you, you don't need to fear him. He will never abuse you. He will never mistreat you. He will never take you for a ride. He will never seek to rely on his own pockets. He will never use you for himself. He instead will do what is good for you. All of this, wrap all of this up. Can you see why we're having to do this one sentence at a time? I mean, there's just so much. And I think our view of Jesus, if we're ever going to go and reach London, if we're ever going to go and speak to anyone about Jesus, we've got to see how big he is. If you've got a small Jesus, you're never going to go and talk to anyone about him. You get a big Jesus in your life, suddenly you have the confidence to go. Here's a few applications. I think this means that we can, I think this means that we find our security. What, What I mean is, Jesus is not an insecure person. So many in our world live with a deep sense of insecurity. We have this sense that we're lacking something. We compare ourselves to others and we feel so rubbish. Jesus doesn't do that. He is secure. I was listening to the radio yesterday. I was driving back from somewhere. I was listening to Capital, because that's how young I am. And uh, I heard this song. I'd never heard this before. Listen to these words. I I, I, I was so moved by these words yesterday in the car, listening to Capital. Never, I don't know who sung it. I don't know anything about it. She's, this is a, a girl singing. She's got everything that I don't have. 
How could I ever compete with that? I know you'll go and change your mind. One day wake up and be bored with mine. She's got everything I don't have. She's all I want to be, all I want to be so bad. She's got everything I don't have, and she's all I want to be. Isn't that tragic? That that's what someone thought, I'm going to write a smash hit record, and I'm going to write it about how deeply insecure I am. I think that's honest. And I think that's true of many of us. And if we could get our eyes on the security of who Jesus is, his position as the one who has all authority in the heaven and on earth, suddenly we begin to find our securities in him. Jesus would never sing that song. Jesus doesn't need anything. He has all authority. And if you find yourself struggling with that sense of insecurity and you look at one another and you compare yourself to others, I don't say this lightly, but the answer is to stop looking at others and start looking at Jesus. He's got all authority in heaven and earth. When you see that, suddenly you understand your place is to find your security in him, in what he's done. And as you see that security, it then, I think, begins to breed a confidence, a confidence that would go, a confidence that would say, I'm going to live for you. What does it matter what anyone thinks of me? What does it matter what anyone says about me if the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth says, I love you, I died for you, you're mine, you're precious, you're awesome, and one day you'll be with me forever? That would get you going, wouldn't it? (laughs) And every time I care more about what my friends think of me than what Jesus thinks of me, I'm showing my view of Jesus is too small. My friends do not have all authority in heaven and on earth. In fact, they have a little bit of authority. Jesus has it all. Oh, that we'd see his authority and his glory and it would set us free. Guys, we need to finish. I'm going to pray. But I hope this afternoon that perhaps by God's grace, by God's spirit, you can see a little glimpse of the authority of Jesus. I'm going to pray, then we're going to stand, and we're going to celebrate that Jesus rules. We're not going to sing contemplative songs. We're going to sing songs this afternoon to worship him and say, yes, Jesus, you have all authority. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's all been given to him. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have the ability and you have the right to act for the good of others. Lord Jesus, thank you for your authority over us. We're so sorry where we resist you. We're so sorry where we act like we've got authority. Forgive us. And instead, let us find our security and our confidence in your magnificent authority. In Jesus' name, amen.